together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord God, we do ask that now in this time, in this place, your word would go forth boldly, that the gospel would be clear, that the joy we have in salvation would be renewed. Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, because you, O oh God, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Rejoice! The Lord is near. Doesn't always feel like the Lord's near. Doesn't always look like it. Doesn't always sound like it, nor do we always act like it. But in prison, Paul wrote, The Lord is near. In a pandemic, in a cultural divide, in a post-election United States, we read, the Lord is near. I mean, did Paul really mean that? As we've talked about, the letter to Philippians was really a pep talk for a congregation. And in this part of the letter, Paul was returning to his expectations for the Philippians. He urged them to unity. Specifically, he urged two women, Euodia and Syntyche, names that we still have popular today. He urged those two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. And this is an echo of that whole exhortation that we read from chapter 2, in which Paul had written, If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others better than yourselves. Look, each of you, not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And that's followed 
by that great Christ hymn. Paul knew church people. We don't know anything more about these two women, nor do we know what was the disagreement. What we do know is that Paul urged them to be of the same mind because they're part of the same team. Paul didn't take sides or provide a resolution to their dispute. He simply urged them to rejoice in the Lord always and then to let their gentleness be known to everyone. Paul valued and remembered how both had struggled with or alongside him in the work of the gospel. He implored the larger congregation to help them get along. In short, Paul was reminding these two to remember with humility the riches of having your name written in the book of life. Did you catch that when I read through it? I mean, that book of life, that's one of those phrases that just kind of jumps out at me. I mean, my first impression when I hear that is St. Peter at the pearly gates with his feather pen, you know, the long feather pen, turning pages in a book that's thicker than a phone book. Well, in the Old Testament, the phrase seems to be more metaphorical. It's an artful way to talk about God's sovereignty over history. God is writing a book. And he will save those whose names are written in the book, but blot out those who sin against him or his people. Jesus picked up on this image in the New Testament when he corrected the disciples for pride in their success in ministry. From Luke chapter 10, we read, Nevertheless, Jesus said, do not rejoice at this, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And then in Revelation 21, 20, the description of heaven is, nothing unclean will enter it, nor anyone who practices abomination or falsehood, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So Paul seems to be using this book of life as a shorthand code to remind these two women that earthly disputes pale and need to pale in comparison with the joy, the salvation, and eternal life. Hold fast. Hold fast to what is important. Release whatever is not important. Unite in the gospel. Don't divide for anything less. It's what leads him to the next paragraph, these paragraphs of incredible wisdom for Christian disciples. Verses 4 through 9 are really the heart of Paul's pep talk. They are the crescendo of Paul's locker room speech to get the team fired up to go out and accomplish great things. He was preparing them for a time in which Things would look bad, and they would need to persevere and hold on. And in doing that, he gives them an imperative, a command. Rejoice. Rejoice. That he repeated again. Again, I say, rejoice. And he told them how. Let your gentleness 
be known to everyone. And then he told them why. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. It's a statement of fact. It was Paul's way of recalling to their mind Jesus' conclusion to the Great Commission in Matthew 28. I will be with you even to the very end of the age. Good pickup this morning. The Lord is near is both a comfort and it is a powerful reality. The comfort is we're not alone, no matter what our circumstances. We're not alone, no matter what trouble or tribulations we are enduring. We are not alone in our joys or in our sorrows, in our health or our sicknesses, in our being overwhelmed or underappreciated. We are not alone. What a comfort. And the powerful reality is God is in charge. The Lord is near is Paul's version of the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of his ministry. And how did Jesus say we should respond? Repent and believe the good news. Believe that God is in charge no matter the circumstances. Believe in God no matter what troubles or tribulations we're enduring. Believe in God in your joys and in your sorrows, in your health and sicknesses, in your being overwhelmed or underappreciated. God is in charge. Believe that God is in charge. Trust that God is in charge. Now to paint the picture just a little bit differently, maybe this make it a little more accessible for us. Upon what do we rely day to day? Now, I want you to imagine this pandemic. If we were cut off from our cell phones and our email, our texts, Netflix, YouTube, social media, any other electronic communication, how many of the things we have acquired have taken on a sense of priority over our trust in God. How many of these things do we trust more than we trust God? I mean, do we really need God when we have all these things to keep our attention? And let me ask you this. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands in here, but you at home, feel free. All right? <laughs> if you had to choose, would you pay your tithe or your phone data bill. If you had to choose, would you read your Bible or turn on the 24-hour news station of your choice, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, OAN, whatever. Now, in fairness, those may not be mutually exclusive options, and you may be choosing both, but just play along for the sake of the exercise. What would you choose? Now, as you ponder your answers, consider what they reveal about your awareness of your dependence, your dependence on God. Think about what it says about your focus on being a good steward of the blessings God has given you. 
Think about how you are doing devoting your time to serving the one you profess as Savior and Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The life we have is a gift we receive daily. And if we open our eyes, if we look with eyes to see, we can see how the Lord really is near. Are you looking? Can you see? A number of years ago, I went to El Salvador with a group of pastors with Compassion International. It's child sponsor ministry. And as part of the trip, we went to worship on a Sunday at a Project Compassion church in San Salvador. It was wonderful. I mean, it was amazing. It's a two-hour service, which some of you may feel like right now. But it was a two-hour service, but it went so fast because I was sitting next to Maria Jose and her family. Maria Jose was the six-year-old girl that our family sponsored, so I got to meet our sponsor child. And it was such a marvelous connection. I mean, she was every bit the six-year-old you would hope. She laughed, she played, she fidgeted through the entire service, right? Well, as I mentioned, the church was in San Salvador, which was among the most dangerous parts of El Salvador because it marked the border of gang territory between MS and MS-13 gangs. And this was Maria Jose's world. Economic poverty, for sure, but the greater reality was the social poverty, the prevalence of violence. We heard about the violence everywhere we went. Families were afraid to turn in for the night. Any family with a boy was afraid to turn in for the night because they didn't know when the gangs were going to come to take their son away. In a different congregation, we met a young mother who was widowed when she was pregnant. Her husband had been murdered in a case of mistaken identity. The gangs had intended to kill someone else. Well, when we met her, her child was about two years old, and this all-white American group of pastors began to hear her story, and we exchanged those glances with each other that just say, can you even imagine? And yet, and yet, she rejoiced in God for the blessing of her son, for the blessing of the community of the church, and for the opportunity and hope she saw because I know the love of Christ. How? How could she rejoice and not be bitter? Well, the simple answer is that she had eyes to see the hand of the Lord at work. She trusted God's promise. She had an eternal perspective. The horror of her husband's unfair, unjust, awful death, it hurt. It wasn't that it didn't matter. I mean, it mattered. and She had tears telling the story. But she also manifested that peace that passes all understanding 
and the confidence in her Lord that nothing, not even death, could separate her from the love of God in Christ Jesus. She repeated what we heard from the pastor of that church, that even though the gangs surround them, it is territory gangs do not own. It's territory owned by the kingdom of heaven. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. The promise that the Lord is near was not empty rhetoric. It was reality. It was their expectation. It was something in which the people put their trust. It was the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is, not seen unless you have eyes of faith to see it. And then Paul wrote, don't worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, one of the most striking memories from that trip to El Salvador was the contrast between the environment and the churches we visited. In the midst of what was oppressive social poverty, the lack of any kind of confidence in justice or moral foundation for the culture, these compassion churches were thriving. They weren't simply surviving. They were thriving. They were an embodiment of Paul's exhortation in Philippians in our text today. One pastor's wife said it this way, where there's light, there also is always darkness. And where there's darkness, light has an opportunity to shine brightest. People we met in El Salvador prayed with expectation. And their prayers were big. And their prayers were urgent, but their devotion was patient. Then, as now, El Salvador was in the grips of gang activity and control to the point that it was fairly well understood that the gangs exercise more authority than does the government. So what do urgent devotional prayers look like? Well, one of the pastors we met spent five years, five years, discipling Norman, who was a leader in the MS gang. Slowly, the pastor gained his trust. Slowly, the pastor gained his respect by being present, by being persistent. And slowly, Norman learned of the love of Christ. And after five years, Norman, who told us this story, and told us that he had ordered or been personally involved in more than 20 murders, Norman received Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. And he now works at the Project Compassion Program Church in San Salvador. We heard his testimony, and it was incredible. But in the group with us were several other active gang members who had just been released from prison who were listening to him. And it's a story with a happy ending, and we rejoice. Excuse me, we rejoice. We like happy endings. We rejoice when things are surprisingly good. But do we rejoice in God even in the midst of darkness? It seems an appropriate question on a day in which we've asked people to stay home and watch the live stream. Right? 
Rejoicing in happy endings is one thing. Rejoicing when all you can see looking forward is darkness requires a very different kind of faith. It requires really a more mature faith. And that doesn't mean age. It's a maturity. We were invited, first day we were there, to go to the home of one of the families of the, of the Project Church. So in groups of four or five, those of us from the United St States went to the homes of some of the families who had children in the Compassion Project program. And my group went to Hector's home. Hector and his wife had four children, three of whom were still living at home. The home that Hector built out of Sidner Block by himself. No electricity, no running water. They had to purchase their drinking water in large containers. And I asked, what's a typical day like here for you? And Hector said he got up at 4 a.m. each morning to get to his job that started at 7 a.m., work for 10 hours for $4 a day. He was thankful. He was thankful because he had work and that his work allowed him time at the end of the day to do things for the church. The meal we brought to their home, it was the El Salvadoran version of KFC. It was the most substantial meal that this family would have all week. They wouldn't let us help clean up after, and our translator explained why later. The rolls and mashed potatoes that we had been in quietly encouraged to not eat would be meals for the family later in the week. In fact, the bones of the chicken wings and the breast that we left in the boxes would be used for soup after we were gone. Now keep that in mind when you hear what comes next. At the end of the meal, we asked how we, these American pastors, might pray for this family. They didn't ask for anything material. Instead, the wife said, pray for our oldest two sons, this one here and the one who's living with his girlfriend, that they receive Christ and have salvation like the rest of us. Can you imagine? This was a family that had not wanted anything to do with the church 18 months prior. They had registered their youngest son in this Project Compassion program because they saw the benefits that were happening. Little David was about six or seven years old. They had enrolled him in order to provide him the opportunity for a better life. And then something happened. David received Jesus. And after David, his 13-year-old sister. And then David's mother. And then Hector. And their lives were transformed. Now, they were rejoicing because they knew the Lord was near. They talked about what an honor it was for them to have us in their home. Their prayer was not focused on an assessment of their immediate circumstances, either short-term or long-term. It wasn't an assessment of their earthly prospects, either short-term or long-term. Their lives were filled with joy based on the foundation of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The relief and the release of knowing that their sins had been forgiven. The promise and the hope of spending eternal life in communion with God in Christ Jesus. No gang, no government, 
No turns in the economy, no other power they experienced against them could take that salvation from them. And for that, they were thankful. He marveled. Their total dependence upon God granted them a peace that passed all understanding that those of us from the United States could only really recognize and celebrate with them. Their prayer requests that their other two sons would come to know that peace. Now, Paul's letter to the Philippians is sometimes confused with living in a life of denial. That is, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, worthy of praise. Think about those things. Didn't Paul read the news? I mean, didn't he see these families? Didn't he see the pandemic and the earthquakes and the wars and the illnesses and the evil all around us? Yeah, Paul saw all those things. Remember, Paul wrote this letter while he was in chains, in prison. He was writing to a congregation in which two prominent women were squabbling over something that threatened to divide the congregation. He was writing to the congregation that was living in expectation of persecution. He wasn't exhorting them to deny the things they saw. He was exhorting them because of the things they saw. It's not a life of denial of reality. And Paul wasn't simply teaching mind over matter, that is, by the power of positive thinking, you can will yourself to overcome hardship. That's not it at all. Instead, Paul was exhorting them to keep the eternal picture in mind. Keep focus. Remember what God has done. Look to see what God is doing. Hope in what God has promised to do. Make your choices faithfully now. That's what's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and worthy of praise. Hardships are real, but choices are made in the midst of hardship. Loving God with all our mind means minding God with all our love, no matter what the circumstances, or actually better said, in all circumstances. Look at what Paul says while he's in chains. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice. Live it now. Use me as an example, he says. As I mentioned last week, Paul wasn't being arrogant. He was saying, imitate me in not valuing the things that have no lasting value. Imitate me in treasuring the very treasure of the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Imitate my focus on Christ. Imitate my passion for Christ. Imitate the hope that I have found in Christ and in Christ alone. Paul's exhortation to look at his example is as relevant today as it was then. His example isn't one that we would see celebrated in most of our media today because, I mean, let's face it, he was a prisoner for Christ. Not exactly the poster boy for success in our culture. Yet he was a success and is an example for us because his vision was larger than the cultural success and circumstances. He was seeking to know Christ and be fully known by Christ. His hope 
is our hope. His dream is our dream. His vision is our vision. And living our life with an eye on taking obedient steps every day is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Now, I didn't have to go to El Salvador to see faithful lives. And I think about the people in this congregation, and I marvel at the witnesses for Christ we have in our own midst. We have people whose lives have been touched by God and who are running the race faithfully. Not perfectly. And that's kind of the point. That God's grace has met and made a difference in the lives of believers who have stumbled and fallen. We are a congregation filled with people who have stories of how God has redeemed failure, has forgiven sins, and met us in our darkest times. So, let me put on my coach's hat one more Sunday. Translate Paul for First Presbyterian Church. Let's go. Let's go. And remember, our mission isn't a solo endeavor. It's a collective effort. We need everyone to help. We have to be united. We have to nurture one another, exhort one another, reach out to the community one person at a time and one family at a time. We've got to share the gospel one conversation at a time. God's put you in this place for the purpose of using you for his glory. So rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. Amen. And let us pray. Lord our God, we do thank you and praise you for your faithfulness and your steadfast love that endures forever. Oh Lord, fill us with that peace that passes all understanding and let us put our hope and trust in you, knowing that you are near. Help us to live according to the ways that you have called us, obedient to your command to go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that you have commanded. And Lord, let us do so joyfully, even as we rejoice in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And let's stand and sing together as able to God be the glory.
I know what I'm going to be singing the rest of the day. Friends, we do have such an amazing God who has promised that he will be with us forever, wherever we go, even to the very end of the age. So friends, go out with that confidence and tell someone. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, rest, remain, and abide with you all, now and forevermore. Amen. Two.